82. So I want to talk a little bit about the ethics of a border wall. Um, of course, this has been a huge subject in our country for the last two, three years. It was all through the campaign. Um, Donald Trump was going to build a wall on our southern border and Mexico is going to pay for it, etc. Uh, completely aside from the personalities and the um, comments and tweets and stuff, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, just the concept of walls. All through scripture, you have, um, because you have a, wor a world in which there are dangerous uh, predators, uh, dangerous uh, foreigners, dangerous adversaries, you have obviously walled cities. So one of the, um, that's, that's basically what a city was. Everything else is a village or a town. Uh, if, it, if it got big enough to be worth taking, it was big enough to be worth protecting. And so a city would build a wall. Uh, Babylon had walls. Uh, Jerusalem had walls because foreigners would come and besiege your city. And they would try to come through the wall or over the wall or blow up the you know, Well, they didn't blow up the wall, but uh, perhaps tunnel under them, that sort of thing. So um, there's nothing in, we can see right off the bat that there's nothing inherently uh, sinful about a wall. Um, as you build a wall and as you establish your gates, uh, you could have righteousness or unrighteousness determining who you let in, why you let them in, the rate at which you let them in. But the, it would be impossible to say that simply because of the fact of a wall, um, you've got a problem. Now, because a, because a wall is a, is a, a thing built by men, um, it can be abused. So, for example, um, you, know, you, you look at um, uh, a success story and an and, um, something that was not uh, something we would consider a success story. So the Great Wall of China, all right, that was built many centuries ago, and it was remarkably effective. There are hardly any Mexicans in China, you know, haha, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but you could have a wall that's every bit as much a wall as the Wall of China, um, like the Berlin Wall, and that was not to keep all the uh, immigrants out. That the Berlin Wall was not built to keep um, Westerners from flooding into the communist uh, paradise. There, uh, the Berlin Wall was built to keep everybody in. And so, uh, the first thing we should consider as we as we think about um, what might happen if someone proposes something, uh, we always ought to have in our mind. Uh, in the back of our mind, or perhaps in the front of our mind, the question of what could go wrong? How, how could this go wrong? Well, a wall that is capable of keeping everybody out is also capable of keeping everybody in. And, uh, and you want to make sure that as you're building the wall, you're not ceding too much power to the people who could just change their minds or change a few policies. And all of a sudden, all the people who want to flee are not able to flee. So a wall can keep out and a wall can keep in. It's a, it's a double-bladed sword. It can cut both ways. Here is a, here'd be another couple of examples. Uh, a wall by itself is fine. A wall by itself is fine. There's nothing scripturally untoward about a wall 
at all. But um, is there something wrong with the doctrine of eminent domain? So let's say we're going to build a wall all across our southern border, and we're going to have a wall between us and Mexico. Um, like I said, there's nothing scripturally sinful about that. But if you seize um, Americans' property on the American side of the uh, wall in order to build a wall on their property, uh, there's something that is really problematic about the doctrine of eminent domain. And uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the famous Kelo case that went to the Supreme Court, where someone's house was seized in order to build some sort of development, and then the developers went bankrupt, and the house was seized, the private property owner lost the case at the Supreme Court, and the development never actually happened. Uh, that, was, that sort of thing is just outrageous. Um, and the president didn't have a problem at all applauding the Kelo case, which I think was... Um, an atrocity. So I think there is, we, we clearly have uh, an inadequate grasp of the importance of property rights. What about all the rights of, uh, what about all the property rights of the Americans who live along the border who will have their ranches or their farms or their properties seized? And they, they, they didn't, uh, didn't want that. So uh, the doctrine of eminent domain has, um, is, there are problematic aspects to it. There's another um, example of something that can cut both ways. Uh, Senator Cruz uh, introduced a measure that would um, pay for the wall by seizing the assets that El Chapo, who was just convicted of uh, uh, his drug smuggling, uh, he had billions of dollars that are uh, there and available. And so uh, Ted Cruz wants to see seize his uh, assets and build the wall with that. And that would be um, a form of Mexico paying for the wall. And so for many people, it seems like an elegant solution. And I think that it actually is, but I still want to be careful because El Chapo was convicted uh, in a court of law. He, his uh, due process rights were respected. But we live in a time when up to a week or so ago, the Supreme Court uh, just greatly restricted um, um, uh, asset forfeiture, um, the capacity of police to seize assets of people who were arrested for um, drugs or, or whatever. But prior to this time, and there, there have been some outrageous and evil things done uh, uh, under the heading of asset forfeiture. So someone could be arrested, they find a couple of bags of dope in his car, and the cops can just seize the car, and and the and he loses that asset, and and, he, and people have lost their assets, even without a trial. So uh, because we because the state is a predatory state, because the state is a greedy, hungry, lustful state, lustful for your money. Um, I want to be very careful that we don't cede power. Uh, to the American government, more, the, we, in order to build the wall, we shouldn't cede more power to the American government than we want them to have after the wall's built. Right. So, um, one of the, here, here's another um, another way of thinking about this uh, principle: we have elections, right? We have elections, and 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 
as a result of an election, you can have uh, someone that you think you, your guy is the greatest and he's in power now and he just did X, Y, Z um, and establish the precedent of being able to do X, Y, Z. You need to imagine before you applaud and cheer too loudly, you need to imagine that power in the hands of the worst politicians in America, the people that if they were in power, it would give you nightmares. Um, you don't want your guy uh, making executive decisions that are going to be uh, really destructive when someone's making different executive decisions. So uh, this is our book review section, um, podcast episode 82. And a book I've, I recently finished was uh, by Brian, a, guy, a gent named Brian Kaplan. And the book is called, provocatively, The Case Against Education. The Case Against Education. Now, this book is, um, as I said, it's provocative and challenging in a number of ways. I've, I've said for a number of years that if, if you look at uh, the, popula- the American population of adults, about 30, about 30% of uh, adults have, had a co- have a college degree. And I've argued for some time now that if we just put our minds to it, uh, we could cut that number in half. Um, and, that, and that flies straight in the face of one of the idols of our age, which is that universal education, everybody should have a college education. Everybody should um, pursue a degree. Uh, and we're, we're seeing the effects of this kind of education inflation where uh, it's now getting to the point where a graduate degree serves in the same place that a college degree used to serve a, a century ago. So, um, we, but we have a religious faith in education. We want everybody to be educated. We want everybody to have access to schools. We don't want money at all to be a barrier. Uh, and so, um, we, with with the with the zealous fervor of um, a recently converted Jehovah's Witness, we're we're going door to door, saying everybody everybody needs an education. Now, what Brian Kaplan does, I want to praise him first, and then and then uh, critique him. Uh, what Brian Kaplan does is he shows he he's a he's a data monkey, and he. Uh, he just drills down and shows what effect education has on different kinds of people who pursue it. So um, when, when is it economically advisable to drop out of college? When is it uh, – and basically, he, he shows that um, to go to college and to complete a degree, it does have a strong economic payoff. Right? He, he demonstrates that over and over again. But the debate that runs through the, the book uh, is between the human capital side, which is education pays because it equips you to be smart enough to n- figure out how to make more money, uh, as opposed to Kaplan's thesis, which is a college degree pays because it signals to future employers that you are the kind of person who can complete a project, who can show up on time, you can get something done. So um, it's a measurement. It's, it's sort of like um, Kaplan might argue, this is my illustration, not his, but Kaplan could argue that it's like an arbitrary obstacle course that somebody 
sets out in the middle of nowhere. And if you run the obstacle course, then someone says, yes, I, I'll hire you to be, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll hire you for my company because you've proved that you're tough, you're resilient, you can do it, even though the job that you take is nothing like the obstacle course. So uh, something that keeps coming up again and again is the fact that most, most Americans with degrees are not working in the field that their degree is in. So um, it's, it's not really a human capital thing at all. Uh, so Kaplan, Kaplan argues that it's, um, it's signaling, and it's signaling to the employer that you're okay, um, you're a reasonable human being, you can show up, you can get it done, and okay. And what was your degree? You know, you've been employed by this company for three years, and someone says, what was your degree again? Was it political science? No, it was English literature. Well, they don't, they don't care about the human capital. They care about what you can do and what you can learn on the job and how, um, how adept you are. Now, the one criticism that I would have, um, Kaplan writes as a libertarian, and he wants to minimize um, funding for education. He wants, to, he wants to do all kinds of radical things. But he, um, the, the main criticism I would have of Kaplan's book is that he, uh, when he's dealing with education, overwhelmingly, 99% of the time, he is dealing with education that is tax-funded, tax-funded education, as opposed to private education. With, with private education, there is a feedback mechanism. Um, with public education, the, the difficulty is without a profit and loss uh, statement because everything's politics and not um, what the customers are buying. Uh, you've got the the people providing the product are not in a position to read any kind of signals from the market back. The, the, they are they are severed from market signals. They are cut off from market signals. So. It, it seemed odd to me that, that a libertarian like Kaplan, who, knows, who, who um, knows and should know about the dislocating power of money, uh, that, that person, Kaplan, basically, I would not have this quarrel if uh, Kaplan had said the case against tax-supported education or the case against government education. Because he, he's, he drills down into... How saleable is it? How marketable is how marketable um, is it? What good is that degree? And he he frequently takes shots at um, the humanities or the liberal arts, but his real enemy is teaching people in the liberal arts that are not rigorous liberal arts, and it's tax supported, so it doesn't matter if the person's ill-equipped. So uh, I I would submit to him. That if we erased all government monies that went to higher ed- education, and the only universities that existed in North America were private colleges and universities, and it was just totally the free market. It, it, there was no government intrusion in education at all. Would there be liberal arts majors? And I think uh, very much so. Um, I believe that uh, liberal arts, uh, liberal arts education is not education uh, 
is not a vote is not vote tech. You're not getting a liberal arts education for your future career as an English teacher. You are getting a vote tech. You're, you're, you're not getting a vote tech education at all. You're getting an education for life, an education for living. Anoitas, anoitas. In scripture, folly is a moral issue. And, and in scripture, folly is not a matter of IQ deficiencies. The word anoitas means foolish, which is how it is rendered most of the time in the New Testament. Paul says that the Galatians, when they were drifting away from the gospel of free grace, were being foolish. He says, O foolish Galatians, are you so foolish? Galatians 3, 1 and Galatians 3, 3. Um, Elsewhere, he says, those who have a lust for wealth fall into temptations, snares, and many foolish and hurtful lusts. That's 1 Timothy 6, 9. Before we were converted, Paul says, we were foolish, disobedient, and deceived. That's Titus 3, 3. So the word is translated as fools in Luke 24, 25, where the risen Jesus is speaking to his followers on the Emmaus road. He says, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And the same word is rendered as unwise in Romans 1, where Paul says that he is a debtor to Greeks and barbarians both, to both the wise and the unwise. That's Romans 1.14. So to circle back around to the top on this, uh, folly is a matter of the heart, not the brain. Uh, you can have someone who's very simple, not very well-educated, not, uh, not a high IQ, and yet they live in a wise way. They, their, their wisdom attends their circumstance and how they, the choices they make. And you can have someone with a very high IQ, uh, someone who got into all kinds of top schools. Uh, all that tells you is that he's got a hot sports car and the engine can rev up to an impressive number of RPMs, but he's still driving down the wrong road at night and the bridge is out. Uh, It doesn't matter how fast he's going or how fast the car can go if he's on the wrong road and in his folly is going to drive off the bridge. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.